Greetings to our Toward Inclusive Excellence listeners. I'm Alexia Hudson Ward, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm excited about this spring semester's podcast with Dr. Tamika Nunnally, Associate Professor of History and Sanders Family Faculty Fellow at Cornell University. Dr. Nunnally's award-winning book, At the Threshold of Liberty, Women, Slavery, and Shifting Identities in Washington, D.C., explores how Black women, enslaved, free, and fugitive, imagined new identities and lives for themselves in an evolving America. What Dr. Nunnally challenges us to do and to think about is situating these women, some of whom survived as sex workers and employees in the so-called vices, as pursuers of liberty, power, and self-governance. Now to our conversation with Dr. Tamika Nunnally. Tamika, thank you so much for joining us. This is really a treat and a delight to have you. And congratulations on all of your book awards for your amazing book, At the Threshold of Liberty, Women, Slavery, and Shifting Identities in Washington, D.C. Would you please share with our listeners and viewers what inspired you to write this book? Yes. So thank you so much for having me on this uh, podcast. It's so nice to have a space to discuss uh, this book that I've been sitting with for a while now. And um, I've always been interested in Black women's history and the stories of Black women and girls um, in the past. But what has been interesting is thinking about Black women more broadly. And most of African-American women's history has sort of focused exclusively on achievements um, or right, the brutalities of slavery. And I wanted to kind of think about the experiences of Black women and girls more comprehensively. And so um, I arrived at D.C. because D.C. is a place where there is a vibrant Um, history of Black families that have lineages um, that date back to the very beginning of the nation's capital's history. And I became very interested in um, how did we, how did we come to um, see this vibrant African-American culture, um, right? Uh, A vibrant Black middle class um, institutions like churches and schools. Um, how far back does that history go? And so I began to dive deeper into the history of Washington, D.C. and Black women and girls and how they were instrumental in establishing these institutions. And what I found is that um, Black women had a lot of different identities. Um, some of them were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Some of them decided to flee and then they became fugitive. Um, some of them um, fled and became free and lived as free people. Some of them remained enslaved. Um, and so they yes. navigated the the nation's capital in very different ways. Some were pulled into the domestic slave trade. Some were building schools and churches and uh, buying the freedom of their family members. And what I came to learn is that there were so many different ways that Black women and girls were defining what liberty looked like for them. And it wasn't sort of exclusively connected to the Emancipation Proclamation that many decades prior to legal freedom, 
Black women and girls were struggling to become free and realize their dreams for liberty. And so that became a really Mm -hmm. fascinating story for me. And I became very invested in trying to figure out as much as I could um, about their experiences. And some experiences are not um, as pretty, right? You know, we have some of the women who became philanthropists and became proper church women, right? And then we have some women who were also engaged in prostitution and leisure economies and gambling um, because they were trying to survive. And so I try to tell right. as That's much right. of that story as possible. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much for that because, you know, I, I do think that in many ways we... Um, in terms of our understanding of Black women in the early Republic, we have, understandably so, attempted to elevate this heroic narrative, right? And so consequently, the people that we have brought forth have largely been the wealthy, the middle class, the educated, the philanthropists, you know, the civil rights leaders, right? But we haven't told the story of the struggle of everyday Black women, and some of whom, as you said, were in the sex trade, you know, or in other forms of adult entertainment, you know, were working in really complicated situations and dangerous situations, you know, working in gambling and and other so-called what we would define now as the vices, right? Yes, that's right. Um, and so that that is just this so that's why I love this book because you humanize all of those women, you know, without putting any judgment on the importance of that work, and it feels like. It's a circular moment in time that now we're starting to have those same types of conversations about Black women and Black women work and and what people have to do to survive, right? Definitely, definitely. It's um, and I even think about just you know what inspires me about studying Black women is I think about my own family members as a Black woman, um, and the experiences of the women in my family are varied, right? There are some who are involved in the vices, right? right? And then there are some that, you know, um, well, reflect some respectability. I can raise my right? hand on that too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, but you know, it's, it's very, it's real, like people did and continue to do what they needed to do to survive. Like I was sharing with someone about this concept of rent parties, you know, um, and speakeasies and how those histories in many ways have been buried because it wasn't the heroic story of perseverance or overcome this, as I describe it, right? It is so central to the Black experience. And many of us are beneficiaries of that different type of struggle that's not illuminated in many books. Yours is, I would argue, the first, if not one of the first, to really illuminate that side of the story. You know, is that there is this red thread of connectivity around what took place then and how many of us stand as the beneficiaries of those complicated narratives now. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I can tell you, my grandmother had rent parties and, you know, ran the numbers. But then my great grandmother was a respectable hey. church lady who was a seamstress. And so it really, you know, and, and to tell that story is to tell the story of how generations of Black people survived over time, over really repressive yes. circumstances, over very violent um, circumstances. Um, and that's, I think, a story that, like you said, resonates with people today who are struggling to survive. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, and Tamika, it seems as if, you know, when we talk about these stories, and I want to bring it around this notion of historical erasure and records alignment, right? Mm -hmm. That it seems as if a historical erasure and or the lack of illuminated records, you know, has really contributed to our limited understanding of Black women's lives in 19th century America. And your book elevates those stories very beautifully in the context of the enslaved, as you were saying, fugitives and those, you know, who are free. And it addresses, you know, a broader scope around liberty and self-making, mm-hmm. as you have described it, concerning these women. And so would you discuss the process in which you were able to find your research subjects and to give them voice for the first time? Absolutely. I love this question when I get it because most of the sources that I look at have been uh, studied, have been cited, but to tell a very different story. And so uh, to give you an example of that, some of the the records and the letters of first ladies um, in the United States, right, um, are oftentimes used to tell the history of the first lady or tell the history of a presidency or of the nation's capital. And here, these little girls and Black women are right there in those yeah. letters. They are they are not hidden. They're literally right there. And um, and so when I first started this project, um, you know, folks questioned whether or not this project was doable, whether or not there would be sufficient uh, a su- sufficient number of sources to consult. Um, and I was concerned about it too. Um, but when I started to look at the lives particularly of white Americans in DC, I also saw the enslaved people and the servants who um, were forced to labor in those homes and labor to support uh, the image of someone like a Dolly Madison, right? Um, Or Jefferson Mm -hmm. presidency. And so those stories were actually right there. And then there were some stories that were harder to find. Um, Sometimes I would look at police precinct records to think about more of those economies of vice. And um, sometimes Mm -hmm. those police precinct records just had basic demographic data. And I had to really kind of imagine um, what it would be like um, to, you know, try to, to solicit, you know, uh, money off of the streets. What does it mean to sell goods on the streets and then get arrested by the cops? And so um, some pieces required me to sort of imagine and um, and even speculate and say, perhaps this might have happened and this could have also happened um, without a definitive conclusion. And then there are others where there's more substantive sources that were just sort of hidden in plain sight. And and so it became sort of a treasure hunt in which sometimes I had more full stories and then some stories were incomplete. I could not tell the rest of the story. And those are opportunities to invite the reader in to think about what they think might have happened um, with someone that um, I was, you know, discussing in the book. And so it's uh, sources are complicated, as you know, uh, as an expert in this, right? And um, oftentimes it has been the reason or the excuse as to why um, historians earlier in American history in the field have not produced histories about Black women. But I think we are a part of a renaissance Mm -hmm. right now where many Black women historians are going back to the archive, to the same sources that early historians of the 20th century had looked at and now are beginning to see and find Black women and girls in the archive. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, what a powerful thing to think of is that they were always there in many Mm -hmm. ways. It just, it required degrees of commitment and creativity, right? To bring forth those types of stories and to really kind of tussle and and wrestle with some of the things that, some of those stories, because I would imagine those are hard stories too. You know, I mean, we can you know, laugh and celebrate the ways in which we stand on the shoulders of women who were hustle women, right? Right. But those things didn't come without difficulties, you know, on their own and dangers, right, on their own. And so I would imagine that you, you had to probably take some time back to say, wow, this is a really heavy story, yet an important one to bring forth. Absolutely. Absolutely. There were definitely moments where um where particularly where children were involved right um or if there were you know um moments where you know someone lost their life or were sold in the domestic slave trade um that were absolutely challenging and also um you know people just trying to eat trying to be warm right trying to find a place to live um these are all yes. different kinds of struggles that people can connect with right in different ways and um the thing about history is that they're real people right and it's not like in literature you know and so um that in itself right makes these stories hard to tell and i imagine is the reason why um some historians um who sort of had access to producing history earlier on, right, um, did not want to engage with those stories because you had to confront certain truths about what this nation is, what it was founded upon, and what it allowed. Right. 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 And that's why, you know, I find this idea of situating Black women into this, like, overarching narrative of American liberty so compelling you know, in the way in which you did it. And so, you know, while you address, you know, free Black women and fugitivity and enslavement, you know, you also conduct this really intriguing study of schools and of government and, you know, and other forms of different activities. And so how do you kind of co-locate all of those existences, even the one that we spent, you know, some time talking about today, the so-called street culture, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you coexist all of that under this larger framework or this larger narrative of the pursuit of American liberty? Absolutely. So one of the questions that historians are always concerned about is who freed the slaves? And I thought that was uh, a question that was sort of incomplete, right? Um, A question that I had was, um, how did Black women envision liberty when legal freedom was not on the horizon? Um, when there was no Emancipation Proclamation. Once you become free, then what? What do you do? Who do you become? And what I found is that um, Black women and girls made a variety, a range of choices um, based upon the very narrow um, pathways that were available to them. And so some of that might have required you know, going into um, informal economies and not just sex and leisure, right, but also building their own businesses, um, having their own garden plots, um, selling their own goods. And, um, you know, and for others who had access, attending school, um, going to school, becoming yes, literate, yes. Right? becoming teachers, um, others, right, um, 
serving as seamstresses and so, sort of deploying some of the skills that they used while they were in bondage um, to now build their own um, enterprise and to be their own boss. And for many, many others, right, it was hard labor, right? Um, becoming a washerwoman, right? Taking in washing, right? Um, hiring out your own services, um, going to the courts, right? To help free family members. And so freedom looked like a lot of different things. Um, but the important thing that I wanted readers to take away was that liberty was not defined by the American government. Um, liberty was defined by these women. Um, the American government um, did not allow liberty to be available to them, right? Unless it was certain, right. you know, under certain right. legal conditions, you know, but these Black women were envisioning freedom, whether they acted on those visions or not. And, um, and they made plans for it. And they had an idea of who they wanted to become. And, um, and that gave us a beautiful portrait of a lot of different women's stories and a lot of different directions that they chose to pursue. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And you raised a really important point that I would like for you to you know, talk about a little more is this idea that liberty is not an extension of what the government gives us, right? Mm -hmm. That liberty and the pursuit of it is an active and deliberate individual act. Sometimes, you know, within community, sometimes mm -hmm. not, right? Mm -hmm. But can you talk a little more about that and, and how you see that in the sense of individual agency of these women and the extension of liberty as a non governmental action, as an individual action? Absolutely. Right. Um, these women are plotting freedom. Right. They're plotting freedom in bondage, in legal bondage. Right. And so um, they act on it with their feet, um, with children in tow, with members of their communities, um, but also by themselves. Right. With um, no attachment to anybody, you know, but a determination to go live a better life. Um, or to flee very violent conditions, um, or to build their own churches, right? To build their own institutions and clubs and organizations. Um, and so this idea of liberty is something that Black people um, not only sort of are constantly trying to realize um, during the 19th century, but quite frankly, during the 20, 20th century, right? In the 21st century, right? And in my That's training, right. That's right. you know, as, as a Black studies scholar, we were, we were always trained to understand the Black experience as an ongoing liberation struggle. And um, yes. as a historian, I was trained to see liberation as right a place to locate in the Civil War, right during the Civil War era. And I think those distinctions are really important because it shapes the kinds of questions that you ask of the past, and it also shapes your interpretation of these women's actions. So by the time we get to the Emancipation Proclamation, these women flee. These women go to DC, they go to the government, they go to Mr. Lincoln, and they said, I'm here to come get my freedom. Right. Um, and right. so they've been imagining right. this, waiting for this. They're not waiting for somebody to take their hand and to take them into freedom land. They're taking they're walking with their feet and acting on their own um, anti-slavery politics. 
And um, and that was something that was important to convey, um, that historians asking the question of who freed the slaves had a very paternalist posture to that question. It assumed, right, Absolutely. that these women, um, men and children did not want freedom um, themselves, did not want to act on those uh, visions of freedom and had not been acting on those visions of freedom. And so the book shows that for many decades prior to the Civil War, they they were disentangling themselves from bondage at, at every mm-hmm. decade. <laughs> right. And as you said, even today, right, that the connection, the beautiful connection between your amazing work is that hopefully people will see it as a precursor to the exact same challenges that we face in the modern era, Right. And how, to your point, there isn't bystanderism. There is activity and activism throughout. You know, there's not like people kind of, you know, the shrinking violence, like, please free me. (laughs) It's just not not so, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you. And you have a new book being released next month on the University of North Carolina Press, The Demands of Justice and Slave Women. Capital Crime and Clemency in Early Virginia. So tell us a little bit about your new book and how it furthers our understanding of Black women in the early republic. Yes. So I I think this is interesting that we are kind of at this moment in the conversation where we're talking about contemporary connections to the past because I wrote this book during the pandemic and during um, the George Floyd protests. And as many Mm. of us were protesting, we... um, there was something about our protest that was trying to convey um, that our legal system is insufficient um, to enact the justice that we seek. And so we protested, um, we invoked, right, um, that there is uh, a level of injustice that has gone on too long. And I became interested in how long and how far back have we been trying to expand the access to legal justice uh, to apply to everybody. And that brought me to the stories of enslaved women and girls who murdered their masters. Um, These Mm -hmm. were enslaved Mm -hmm. women and girls who had really been brought um, to a place where they could no longer take the level of brutality and cruelty they were experiencing anymore. And so um, they acted with a set of actions whether it be violence, uh, murder, poison, infanticide, where they could not seek legal recourse, they acted on their own ideas about what was right and what was wrong. And, um, and that's when I came, kind of came up with this book, The Demands of Justice. And, um, and I was inspired by this generation's desire to protest um, all of the anti-Black violence and police brutality that um, people mm. have been experiencing. Hmm. Wow. I cannot wait to read it. I'm looking forward to it. I know it is amazing as this book has been amazing and this conversation has been awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This has really been a treat to have a conversation with you about your ongoing work around the red threads of American democracy, liberty, how Black women sit at the nexus of these powerful conversations from a historic lens. So thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Thanks so much for listening to this fascinating conversation with Dr. Tamika Nunnally about her award-winning book on UNC Press, At the Threshold of Liberty, Women, Slavery, and Shifting Identities in Washington, D.C. Sign up for reminders of new Toward Inclusive Excellence content releases and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time and support. Be well.